0: The scripture this afternoon is Revelation chapter seven, verses one through 17. If you're using your pew Bible, it's page 234 in the second half of the book. I'll give you a second to turn there or scroll there in your digital Bible if you need it. Revelation seven. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Twelve thousand from the tribe of Judah … were sealed Twelve thousand from the tribe of Reuben Twelve thousand from the tribe of Gad Twelve thousand from the tribe of Asher Twelve thousand from the tribe of Naphtali Twelve thousand from the tribe of Manasseh Twelve thousand from the tribe of Simeon Twelve thousand from the tribe of Levi Twelve thousand from the tribe of Issachar Twelve thousand from the tribe of Zebulun Twelve thousand from the tribe of Joseph 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation.
1: Glory. Well, good afternoon, fam. Good afternoon. It's good to be together. I'm eager for prayer, as this weak and broken vessel has two jobs today, um, but I'm aware that it's a glorious truth in this passage we just read that God wouldn't let any frailty get in the way of, so I'm confident God's going to speak to us. But let me pray and ask for his help. Lord, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that even though you ascended, you sent your Holy Spirit, and your Holy Spirit guided the apostles to write profound truth about yourself. And Lord, particularly for the words you gave, the vision that you gave to John, Thank you for the glorious hope that we have waiting for us in heaven. Would you bless us? For those who are struggling, who feel like they've lost their way, would they remember their destiny today? For those who are downtrodden and beaten up, would they remember that they will be made whole one day? For those who are just longing, longing for you to return, would you give them an increased sense of peace as they wait? Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. New York Times writer Christopher Clary wrote this about the Russian Olympics and the preparations that many uh, would undergo to prepare for that time, the one that was in Soki a few years back. The Canadian bobsledder, Lyndon Rush, had not yet arrived in Soki but he was already on the olympic sliding track as he sat in a chair in the munich airport several days before the winter olympics his eyes wide open but his mind's eye far away as he traced a sinuous path through the air with his left hand i just went from seven to fourteen rush said referring to the section of the track between curves seven and fourteen visualization has long been a part of elite sports. Al Order, a four-time Olympic discus champion, and the tennis star, Billie Jean King, were among those using it in the 1960s. But the practice of mentally stimulating competition has become increasingly sophisticated, essential, and elaborate, spilling over into realms like imagining the content of news conferences or the view from the bus window on the way to the downhill. The more an athlete can image the entire package, the better it's going to be, said Nicole Detling, a sports psychologist for the United States Olympic team. This is more than ever a multi-sensory endeavor, which is why the term imagery is now often preferred to visualization. Visualization for me doesn't take in all the senses, says Emily Cook, the veteran American aerialist. You have to smell it. You have to hear it. You have to feel it, everything. There's this weird preparation that people have started doing for Olympic Games. They won't actually be on the track. They won't actually be going down the slope. They'll be at the bottom of that slope, and this is what they'll look like. Just flailing around, throwing their limbs around, their eyes like this the back of their heads, freaking out the little kids, everybody wondering what in the world is going on. They're visualizing what's about to happen. And the crazy thing is, it actually has freaked out some of the competitors. The the lengths that some people have gone to, one person wrote, sometimes their eyes go back a little so that their whites show, and it's really kind of creepy. Erin Hamlin, the American bronze medalist in the loose, said of her fellow competitors. Some people really get into it. And because she's a, luge, uh, a, a lose competitor, because we paddle to start, they'll paddle really hard on the bench and all of a sudden you'll be sitting there really quietly and someone will just hit the bench really hard and startle you. There's this wild phenomenon. It's almost like if someone didn't know better, they'd just capture it with a video camera and send it to America's Funniest Home Videos, right? And get a whole bunch of money from it. But these Olympians are worth, are, feel like it's worth looking ridiculous because they know that it pays off to visualize the end goal. Visualization is key for the success of any athlete. Any of you who are fitness trainers know that you have to envision your goals as you work. But it's even more important for Christians. We need to visualize our end goal. The Christian process is one that's only possible with an eternal perspective. And as a church family, we've been in the middle of a sermon series this summer, I hope you've liked it. It's been on worship, and this sermon is concluding that series by taking a look at the vision of heaven, the vision of worship that will happen in heaven. And that's the image, that's the vision that we need to bring to our mind's eye. Think about it, it's an incredible privilege to be able to see this vision. Chapter seven, what was just read. Christ could have died on the cross, ascended, and not inspired John to see what he saw. And we would be left with some doubt about what would happen at the end of our life. But God in his kindness has not left us wondering what will happen in the future. If you believe in Christ and you believe in his word, amen, you know what happens. We know that God wins and that we get to share in that glorious victory. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. That's what this chapter is all about. And we need this. We need this vision. Think about it. How many of you have gone through something you would say is extremely difficult this last year? Maybe right now you are suffering agonizing loss. I see a hand, that's that's, that's me too. Maybe you've suffered the loss of someone. Maybe you are just depressed and you don't know why. Maybe you feel lonely. Maybe you're just feeling surrounded by darkness and struggle. How many of you are discouraged in the fight for ethnic harmony and unity? How many of you feel battered by spiritual warfare? How many of you feel distant from the God you know is alive and active, but you don't feel it? We've either been there or we're there. And we need, in the midst of that darkness, to set our eyes on the coming, glorious, eternal future that we have. Robert Mounts Writes, the purpose of the vision, he's talking about chapter 7, is to grant a glimpse of eternal blessedness to those about to enter the world's darkest hour. He wants us to see our end goal in light of what lies between the now and the then. Because we're in a time of warfare. Revelation makes no bones about it. There's some scary fighting that happens, right? But we're not in doubt as we fight and as we even fail at times and as we take a step backward before we take too forward. We know the end goal is that we conquer in Christ. And that's why we need to read the book of Revelation to remember the end of the story. But how many of you have read the book of Revelation from 1 to 22, all the way through? Awesome. Thank you for taking God's Word seriously and reading it. How many of you were kind of confused? So I was too. How many of you were discouraged maybe from reading it again because you didn't understand everything in it? I've been in that place before. But you know what the interesting thing is? I think we sometimes find ourselves in that place of being discouraged because we're reading the book of Revelation the wrong way. Instead of reading it like it's a thousand-piece puzzle that we need to put together and figure out every detail, we should read it like it's an epic drama, a glorious story of victory. Vern Poythress wrote an awesome book on Revelation. It's called The Returning King. If you haven't read it, it's really good. I recommend it. And he says this,
0: Revelation
1: is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied with isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the overall story. Praise the Lord. Cheer for the saints. Detest the beast. Long for the final victory. Revelation is not a cryptic cipher, it's a majestic story of victory, one that gives us hope. And we need to get caught up in it. We need to get caught up in the amazing future so that we don't let our hope get quenched by the darkness we face. So what's the specific picture in Revelation seven? What's the specific image that God's giving us today to bring to our mind, to visualize? Well, the story begins in chapter four. In chapter four, let's, let's visualize this together. Even as I'm speaking, try to bring this to your mind. In Revelation four, God is on the throne and he is worshiped by angelic beings and the elders surrounding him in heaven. Then, in chapter 5, John hears an angel cry out, Who is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seals? And all of heaven looks on with longing to see the purposes of God proceed in his glory. And John begins to weep. He begins to sob. Because he wants to see the plans unveiled. He wants to see the glory of God go forth. And there's no one found worthy. And he's beginning to doubt, will there be someone worthy? And then enters the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And the angel says, weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And the Lamb appears before John and it says, standing as though it had been slain. John's way of saying, dead and resurrected in glory. The risen Christ shining forth, unveiling the purposes of God in glorious splendor. And the elders and the four living creatures respond with a new song of adoration. They say, worthy are you, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Hallelujah. Then the angels join into the song. They say, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and blessing, And then all creation doesn't want to get left out either. They start singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped before the throne. And then the lamb begins to open the seals of the scroll. And God's glorious purposes begin to happen. Revelation 6, the next chapter, shows the Lamb opening each scroll uh, each seal and unleashing judgment on the earth. As He opens each seal, the majestic living creatures cry, Come! And the thundering voice of the living creatures, the riders of destruction, ride through the earth, wreaking havoc. Martyrs cry out who have died to God to avenge their death the earth quakes, darkness falls, and stars rain upon the earth. And we should all be trembling in fear at the glory and the power and the majesty of the Lamb. And in the wake of the destruction of these seals, the rich and powerful on earth respond by hiding themselves in the cave and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks as if they were alive. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath is come and who can stand? What a vivid and horrifying picture. The richest and most powerful on earth, are so evil, they won't even submit to Jesus even though they're cowering in caves. They'd rather die than repent. But in the midst of their depravity, we we hear a very relevant question. Who can stand? And that's what Revelation 7 answers. Before the Lamb opens the seventh seal, God gave John two visions to show the community that would stand the community that was protected, the community that was righteous, the community that was diverse, the community that was happy. And over against the panic and condemnation of the pagan world, we see the security and the blessing that awaits followers of Christ. And in light of all of that, our main point from this chapter is going to be that our God is worthy of hope-filled praise. Our God is worthy of hope-filled praise. Amen. So in light of the present darkness, in light of all the stuff that's coming to your mind right now, we need to bring this day to right now in our minds. We need to visualize. And the the passage is going to give us three specific things about God, three specific hope-filling truths about God, that will help us persevere in the darkness in light of that coming hour. Here are my three points. God is one, our present protector, our present protector. Two, he's our future perfecter, future perfecter. And three, he's our preeminent pleasure. So as we examine these points, my prayer has been that each of us would visualize what's coming, and be filled with hope, even as we study it from these verses. So let's look at uh, point one, our present protector, in verse one. Lori read this well, and she said, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth, or sea, or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And it continues on through each of the tribes. And in this first, these first eight verses, we see John's first vision of the chapter angels are holding back destructive powers that are planned to punish the earth and then we see in verse 2 the other angel rising from the sun with a seal from the living god saying do not harm the earth right until we have a chance to seal these people on their foreheads now don't miss these these angels nothing that's happening in the book of revelation is unchecked it's not spinning wildly out of control Even the punishment that God allows on the earth is proportioned perfectly and justly by His will. These angels command these forces, and the angels are commanded by the will of the living God. God is a present protector of the people holding back these angels until He has a chance to seal. But why does God want to seal these people? Why does he want the angel to go and seal them before the darkness begins? Well, in New Testament times, people were roughly illiterate. Most people couldn't read. So whenever there was some type of edict or order from someone who was in charge, like a king, the only way to prove it was actually from them was a seal that would be on the scroll that they gave. The king would have a signet ring that he'd press into the wax seal that only he had that would prove this is from the king. And so as God sends this angel to seal, he's marking them as his own things. He's marking them as officially accepted and protected by the living God. Angels of destruction are powerless against this ring, this seal. So our God is a present protector. He's, before he allows the forces of darkness to come and destroy make an end. He sends his seal to validate and authenticate his people. And God's protection is permanent. When he talks about the sealing word, it's a a, a very long word, esphragis menon in, in Greek, and it's in this weird tense called the perfect tense where it actually implies something that always has been that way, something that's permanently in that way. So when he says they have been sealed, or when he's reading the tribes, 12,000 from Judah were sealed. That's an emphatic, have always been in the mind of God sealed forever since. He's not just protecting them in the moment, it has always been in his heart and always in his plan to protect these people. Now, this passage is loaded with glorious truth. It keeps going. Did you notice where he seals them? It's on the forehead. And back in Bible times, this was the traditional place where a slave would be branded. And we, we think of that word slave and we cringe rightly because our nation's history has been bloodied by the hands of the transatlantic slave trade, right? But when God is your master, slavery is not a negative thing. It means you get to claim him. You get to claim to be a part of his people, it means that he actually said, I want to own you and protect you as my own. So when he seals these people on their foreheads, he's declaring his particular care and protection over them. They are mine. Now, in light of chapter 6, we know that these people will experience physical suffering, right? You have fit, experienced physical suffering, have you not? But there's a spiritual bond that's over your life, a spiritual protection, a seal that guarantees that all that are sealed will not be lost, that God will jealously guard the salvation of all those whom he has called. But who are those 144,000 people? Is that just Israel? Well, did you know that in the New Testament, God often talks about all of God's redeemed people with Jewish and Israelite words. It's actually interesting if you look at it. um, In James chapter one, they're called the 12 tribes in the dispersion. They're also called that in Matthew 19 and Luke 22. They're called those in the dispersion in 1 Peter 1. The Christian is called the true Jew in Romans 2. And the church is the Israel of God in Galatians 6. And descriptions of old Israel are piled up and applied to the church in 1 Peter 2 and in Ephesians 1. The the New Testament is just riddled with God talking about his people in Jewish terms. And actually, it's interesting, even in this passage, we, see, we hear them called the servants of our God, don't we? The servants, or literally, the slaves of our God. And that's a term that's used for all of the redeemed people, not just the, the Israelites, but all of redeemed nations, five different times in the book of Revelation. And so we see that, in, like he does in other places, Um, it it seems that John is using Israelite terms to describe the entire church. And even later, you'll see when the new heavens and the new earth come together and God himself is the light of his people and he walks among them. What's that city called? The New Jerusalem. Not because everybody in it is Jewish or an Israelite. There will be some among that. But because there's continuity in the people of God. What God started in Adam and Eve and continued through Abraham, and through Moses, and through David, and it's continued through the apostles and into the church, he has done in utter continuity and completeness. And later you see these terms. It's, they're called the 12,000, right? The 144,000. Did you notice those numbers? Well, you're going to see if you study the book of Revelation, which I, I just urge you to do, you'll see that God often uses that terminology of 12,000, 12, 144,000 to refer to a complete amount. There are 12 thrones and 12 elders and 12 tribes, right? There's a wholeness, a completeness, a continuity to these people. So what's the point? It's a lot of details. The point is that God's people are not incomplete. As we look and we see God's protective love, did he miss some? Did he not gather some that he wanted to? No, emphatically, by using 144,000, by using every tribe of Israel, we see over and over again, God showing that all whom he calls, he will faithfully bring and seal and bring to himself. So right now, right now, there are demonic powers attempting to unleash themselves on you as you sit in your pew. Right now, you have a target on your back. The devil is roaming the earth like a roaring lion, seeking to devour the people of God. And God is commanding his angels hold him back, protect them, I must seal them. And then he made his way into your life. He called you to himself. He gave you his spirit and he sealed you for himself. And right now, the wrath of the Lamb should be righteously poured out upon each and every one of us without this seal. So how in the world can can we be sealed? I'm not impressive. I sin all the time. Ask Missy. My wife, she'll give you examples from this past week about how I have doubted and not trusted in God. I am weak, I'm frail. How can I be sealed? Well, you know what? God has always been about saving and seeking sinful people. And the way he seals his people is with the blood of Jesus Christ. Check this out. You guys remember the story of the plagues in Egypt? Do you remember how it ended? Not before the Exodus? You have the last plague go forth and the firstborn are struck dead of all of Egypt. But how are the Israelites preserved? The blood of the lamb was placed upon the lintel of the door. They were sealed by the blood that caused the angel of death that came to destroy, to pass over them. And friends, that was picturing the day when Christ would come Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the one whom we were just singing about, he left the throne of God and he became a man, a little tiny speck inside his mother's womb. Remaining fully God, he took on the frailty of a small human that grew and emerged from his mother and obeyed his flawed parents. Even when they didn't make any sense, he was submissive to them. And he lived a minuscule life, laboring as a carpenter, waiting for the day when his father would say it is time to minister. And he would walk into that river. He would be baptized by the Holy Spirit. He would speak miracles, prophecies. He would raise people from the dead. He would then lay down his life though he could have just caused all of his enemies to blow up on the spot, to be unmade, he said, Pilate, I refuse to defend myself and I give myself over to you, not because of your power, but because of the will of my Father. And Jesus laid down his life so that he could die, so that you, my friends, wouldn't have to die for your sins. Friends, if you have trusted in Christ, the blood of Jesus that He spilled on the cross now covers you like the lintel door in the plagues. You are covered with the righteous blood of Christ. You are sealed. You are one of the complete and whole people of God because of the power of the blood. This blood of Christ is unable to be broken. You are His You cannot be be lost. Not even death can sever this seal. Paul says in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, or regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For we can be sure. We can be sure because of the sealing love of God. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? His blood has sealed you, the blood of the Lamb. And God's present protection is complete. He will gather, own, and seal all those whom He has chosen. You may experience the sword of persecution. You may experience the hunger of famine. You may experience your whole life shaking with tribulation. But you will not be conquered. You are more than conquerors because your future is secure in the victory of the Christ on the cross in his blood. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Everyone will overcome. So, friend, your God sees you right now. He has and will faithfully seal all those whom he's chosen. You're not alone, you're not unloved. And though you're experiencing fire of tribulation right now, that doesn't mean that you've been lost. You're kept by the glorious God. He's zealous to keep you. You're not forgotten. And because of this, our God is worthy of hope-filled praise. He's our present protector. He's at this business right now protecting us. And He's worthy of hope-filled praise. Not fearful praise. Not... Praise that's held back. Praise that's waiting for another day to get loud. Praise that He's right now declaring, I have hope in you, Jesus. We set our hopes on you. He's worthy because He's able to sustain us. He's worthy so we should lift our weary heads to that day and visualize the fact that we will have been sealed. We will have been emerging from the tribulation as more than conquerors. That's not all that God shows John. John shows another vision, and in this second vision, we see two more hope-filling truths that help us to see we're supposed to worship God with hope-filled praise. Here's the next one. He's our future perfecter. Future perfecter. Read with me in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What a glorious section of scripture. What a glorious vision God has given us to have in our mind's eye as we persevere. We're going to behold now together the perfection of the future community of believers in Christ. They're perfect in several ways. First, they're perfect in number. Did you notice that it says John sees a great multitude that no one could number? A great multitude, a massive congregation as far as the eye can see. Think about that, visualize that. The biggest crowd you've ever been to, way more than that. Just as we might peer into the sky, and be incredibly overwhelmed by the immensity and the number of the stars as they glow. And we don't even bother to try to count because there's so many of them, and they're so ridiculously amazing. John beholds a community that's number defies our imagination. And we need that truth right now. How many of you feel lonely? You feel like you're not among the many people in your commute to work that love Jesus Christ? How many of you feel like in your family you're the only one holding down the fort? How many of you work in places where you're one of the only Christians there in your community, on your block, in your commute? We feel like we're one of a few. We feel like we're all alone sometimes. But we are headed to a day When we will be surrounded by such a crazy number of people, we'll be like, how did all these people live? With John, we'll say it's a multitude that no one can number. But they're not just perfect in number. They're perfect in diversity, right? We know this verse well, at Risen because we're well taught from Tim on this topic and from Joel and Tia Gaines in our Grace and Race Ministry. But notice, notice with me that they are from not just the nations, They are from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. Listen, y'all, what we're doing here at Risen Hope, it's multi-ethnic ministry. Last time I checked, there was over 20 different ethnicities present on a typical Sunday. That's multi-ethnic ministry, and it's glorious. We should just thank God for that, amen? We should be like, thank you, God, for that gift. But this is not multi-ethnic ministry we're viewing here. This is omni-ethnic ministry. This is every single nation, every single tribe and peoples and language. Not a single people group has been left out by our God's saving love. Perfect in diversity. We get glimpses of this. We praise, I myself, by singing through gospel praise, have opened a whole new window of joy in my life that I never had before risen hope. That's nothing compared to what's going to be unlocked on that day when we worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ from all over the world, from all times and histories, and all the languages and the peoples. It's going to be glorious, brothers and sisters. So are you, are you tired of having hard conversations? Are you tired of trying to understand a different culture than yourself? Are you tired of being overlooked, mistreated, not seen, feeling other? We need this vision. We need to remember that there's coming a day when all of that will fall away. And we will be in absolute glorious happiness at being one with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it says that they worship with a loud voice. I don't know how it's going to work, but all the languages are going to sing in the A-loud voice. There's going to be incredible diversity and unity happening in a way that just blows our imaginations away. And it should inform our pursuit today, shouldn't it? We should worship to the best of our ability like like we're going to on this day. So one of the reasons we try to explore with new styles, we try to embrace as many of the cultures as present here in our worship and our liturgy, is because we want to get ready friends we don't want to we don't want to miss out on the tastes of heaven that god can give us here and right now as we worship together in beautiful diversity and we need this vision because this this nation is broken even even nations like ours that have diversity in them we we just so struggle there's anti-Semitism gone widespread and unchecked. There's terrorism incited by a damning ideology called white supremacy on our soil. And even the nations that don't have the opportunity for ethnic diversity, perhaps in certain areas in larger nations, they have to wait too for this coming day. But friends, we do not lose heart. We do not give up. We do not stop going to grace and race conversations, fellowship, because we don't see immediate fruit, because we don't feel like our perspective won the day that time. We don't stop listening and asking honest and vulnerable questions. We don't stop hoping for glorious unity because the day's coming. We've seen the future. You've seen it, friends. You know it. You know how this movie goes. When you watch the movie the first time, you're nervous. The second time through, you're like, I love this part. We need to realize that, friends, we're on the way up. We're not going to crash and burn as a congregation, friends. You are in the streamline of grace and the redemptive purposes of God. You're on your way to being in this gathering. But they're, they're not just perfect in number. They're not just perfect in diversity. They're perfect in victory. They're wearing white robes. Did you notice that? Not just any kind of robe. The the word for that is like a decorative, like, like banquet robe there. These are the type of robes that you'd wear in a victory celebration. They're the robes that are given to us by Christ when he dies for us. We receive his righteousness. And not only are they clothed with righteousness, Leon Morris writes, The saved stand before God, perfect in the righteousness which Christ supplies. What is also the color of victory? While palm branches too were often emblems of triumph. Just like in the olden days when a king would return conquering and his people would give him glad applause and wave palm branches in the air saying, you're victorious, O king. We will be waving palm branches in robes of victory, sharing in the glorious conquest that our savior completes. But we'll not just be perfect in victory, in diversity, and in number. This passage tells us that we will be perfect in resurrection. Did you notice when I was kind of recapping Revelation 5 that the Lamb was standing those slain? Remember that language? This is John's way of saying he died and resurrected, standing those slain. Did you notice what the redeemed community is described as here? There's, this is what it says. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Not, John didn't just say that because later they fall down. The angels do that. He says it because the saints are glowing in the radiant resurrection. The saints are standing with the lamb who was slain and now is standing in resurrected glory. And now we live in the in-between. Now we know we're forgiven because we have the proof of the cross. But so often we fail and we stumble, but then, then we will be as we know we are loved. We will be righteous even as we're called righteous. And friends, we need to visualize this picture this is who you're becoming. This is your destiny. He will keep us for the day. He will be our future perfecter. That's not it. Finally, he will be our preeminent pleasure. a preeminent pleasure. Let's look in verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne, the Lamb will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Visualize the intimacy here. This is your future. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, us, weak and pitiable us. We are before the throne with the myriads of angels and the living creatures and the elders. And what are we doing? We serve him day and night in his temple. We enter the Holy of Holies. We. We, the weak, are given the place of honor with immediate access to God. And how does God respond as we break into his presence? With wrath burning us up because we had strange fire? No. He shelters us. He condescends towards us. He tabernacles with us. He covers us with his presence. He shelters us. And his presence will be our dwelling place. Such intimacy is beyond understanding. We will see. We sing this. We will know like we've never known before. We'll be found. We'll be home. We'll be yours forevermore. Oh, friends, we'll be satisfied. There's going to be no regrets. No regrets for deciding to follow the Lord and take up your cross and, and count the cost. There's never going to be any more hunger, neither any thirst. No, I wish I had. We will be completely satisfied, completely protected from any type of striking or scorching heat. Other pleasure, preeminent pleasure. So why will we be protected? Why will we be satisfied? Well, the text tells us for the lamb in their midst, the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. You see that metaphor switch? The lamb becomes the shepherd, he died for us, he got us there, and he continues to be our object of faith, leading us, even in heaven. The second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ, he will guide us, he will protect us, he will lead us. He will lead us to the eternally satisfying presence of God. He leads us to the living waters. And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, will eternally fill us with the boundless satisfaction of God. And God the Father himself will spread his presence. He will grab us up and he will wipe away the tears from our eyes. Tears of astonishment. Tears of I can't believe it. He will say, my son and my daughter, welcome to the new norm. You are my children and I will make my dwelling place with you. Do you see the intimacy with God that is your destiny? None of you should be disappointed about your futures. Like, oh, my job, I'm not the best. Who cares? Listen. We're headed to a day where we will actually be fellowshipping with God beyond walking with God in the garden. He will fill us. He will satisfy us. He will... He will enter into our world. He will shepherd us. Our future is one of preeminent pleasure. It's permanent. It's forever and ever. It's unmatched. It's filled with the satisfying presence of God. So how do we respond to this vision? We worship God with hope-filled praise. Not just going through the motions. Not just saying, okay, I guess I'll sing this song. I don't like this song. I'm going to wait this one out. No. We seize onto these promises and we believe. We say, God, these ridiculous things that I could never have come up with. I would have felt audacious to come up with this. I will receive them as truth and I will believe that you will do this. We worship with the hope of heaven in our hearts. We worship a God as incredible is the one we see revealed in these verses. And we cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Another translation says, to God and to the Lamb, we owe our salvation. We say, God, you deserve all the glory. You deserve all the credit. God is so worthy and so deserving of our praise that do you know the angels can't even keep silent? Did you remember that? Verse 12 What do they say? They ascribe seven qualities to God. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. And get this, each of those words are preceded by the article in Greek. It's the blessing, and the glory, and the wisdom. It's not just, Lord, you're such a blessing. Lord, thank you for being so glorious. It's, Lord, you are the definition of blessing. You are the blessed one. You are the source of blessing. Happiness finds its source and end in you. He is the blinding glory of light. He's transcendent in awesome majesty. He's the glorious one. He is the wisdom. His ways are perfection. His thoughts are gloriously true and brilliant. And His will is unstoppably working all things for the good of all y'all who love Him. Do you believe that? He's the reason for thanksgiving. Nothing else matters without Him. A passing compliment. uh, Hey, thank you so much for doing that. None of that matters without God. He's the reason for thanksgiving. Any thankfulness, all gifts are from Him. Nothing compares to Him. All things are from Him and to Him and through Him, right? He is the one of honor. Oh, the dignity of our God. He never once unjustly abused the weak. Never once failed to resonate with perfect holiness when tempted. He is worthy of honor. He is the powerful one. Supreme. Sovereign. There's no power struggle. There's no competition. There's no dualism of light and darkness. There's one supreme God, and he reigns supreme from his throne, ruling the nations with a rod of iron. He is mighty. He is power in fullness, and he's not great because we're grateful. He's not blessed because we're happy. He's not honored because we honor Him. He is self-existently amazing. So much so that when we behold Him, we cannot stop to worship Him. We cannot help but have thanksgiving well up in our chest, give all of our lives, all of ourselves to Him. Why not? Because we're so great and we have such a generous heart. But because He elicits that. He's that glorious. The African, the African theologian St. Augustine said, "God is above whom there is nothing, apart from whom there is nothing. Supreme life, supreme truth, supreme blessedness, supreme wisdom, supreme being. And the perfection we will one day experience in the omni-ethnic gathering of resurrected saints flows from the preeminent perfection of God himself. We will shine like stars because he is the incomparable sun. We will glow with brilliant white rose because we reflect his radiant glory. And so we look at this dark and miserable world filled with struggle. And we say, you are not my destiny. I am headed to a glorious future. I'd like to invite the band to come back up because we're going to apply today by singing. We're going to sing songs of worship. Amen. We're going to sing songs of worship because He is worthy to be praised with hope-filled praise. And particularly because Risen Hope is a congregation that is astonishingly diverse, I actually asked a few people to come up and to read um, salvation belongs to our God, to who sits on the throne and to the lamb in different languages, because we have people in our congregation who can do that. So as we sing an oldie but goodie, ancient of days, I want you to just enter in as people read in their own, or in, a, excuse me, in a different language and allow that picture to inform your whole week. This is where we are headed and beautiful blessedness for eternity. So let's stand as we sing together. And if you're doing the readings, you can just start lining up over here.